Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Continue our study in this wonderful epistle. This morning we'll be looking to verses 1 through 19. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19. The Word of God reads, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues... What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, Who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language... I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's go before the Lord in prayer for his blessing upon his word this morning. Lord God, we ask now that you would minister to us by way of your Holy Spirit, according to your glorious 
word and grant me the grace to, to declare this very important truth to your wonderful people who serve so faithfully. Bless them this morning, Lord, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Um, when the church gathers on the Lord's Day, we come together um, above all else to express our love and thanks to the Lord through our worship. So that everything we do within the corporate setting of this, the body of Christ, is to be directed to the honor and glory of God who loved us and gave himself for us. For there is one God, 1 Timothy 2, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. And amen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed, all things have been made new. That is faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, God incarnate, who said, true worshipers will worship him in spirit and truth. That is from the heart, according to the revelation of himself given to us in the Bible. Now, along with this Godward vertical focus, we are also to be concerned with the horizontal aspect of our attention um, as we gather together on any given Lord's Day, and that is our love for one another. That is the body of Christ. So that what we do in the corporate gathering is to seek to edify one another. That is to build one another up in the faith. Because trials and temptations are real. We stumble, we fall, and we need to be built up again. We need to hear the word again. We need to be reminded of God's word daily. And along with that, we need the encouragement of, of one another. I spoke with a sister from this church this past week, and she told me how much she misses gathering together. She appreciates what we have, this medium, but what she said is that it's just not the same. She said, every week that I walk into this fellowship, I can just feel the love of God's people. She said, I need this. You know, I need the word, I need the fellowship of my brothers and sisters, she said, in order to reset. And I say amen to that. See, friends, that is the emphasis of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, set within the context of dealing with spiritual gifts. Now, what drives this entire chapter is the concern that the church be committed to edification. And that theme is what underlies this whole discussion, and that's clear at the end of verse 26 if you look at it. Notice, let all things be done for edification. 
to build up. Something that the Corinthians had lost sight of. For some, the Sunday gathering there in Corinth had become a time to show off. A time to draw attention to self. Now as we look at this, beloved, remember we are in a long section dealing with the abuses of spiritual gifts. That is within the corporate gathering of God's people. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all one unit. Uh, The great statement of love that we looked at in chapter 13, it was made in that specific context, the abuse of spiritual gifts. And, And Paul's primary purpose is the priority of edification as a function of love. Now, the general argument of the verses we just read is this. If love should motivate and control the exercise of spiritual gifts within the church, then clearly the gift of prophecy, which edifies the whole church, is to be considered superior to tongues. The point of focus here, beloved, is the preeminence of understanding. That's the title of the message. Preeminence of understanding, um, the, the, the primacy of intellect. See, for the, the Corinthian church to be edifying, there must be intelligibility opposite of tongues. And I must say this from the outset. Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is not, and once again, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is not an instruction manual on how the gift of tongues is to be regulated in the church today. They do not exist today. The gift of tongues ceased. We were told last time um, in our study that... Prophecy and knowledge will be done away at the coming of the perfect. We studied that. But yet, tongues will cease. It will cease on its own. Like a battery, it will wear out. It will come to an end, and it seems to have petered out even before the end of the apostolic age. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 2 that shows us something of that um, last Lord's Day. Now, in chapter 14, Paul is seeking to correct what Gordon Fee calls an unbridled expression of tongues. An unbridled expression of tongues. Now, while the true gift of tongues was indeed active early on in the church, that gift had become the admiration of of this congregation and that spurned jealousy in some who did not have the true gift. So it was therefore counterfeited with unintelligible babble. Glossolalia is the word. Now the gift of tongues in the Bible refers to the supernatural ability to speak in a human language that had never been learned by that individual. 
And that's clearly described for us in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, where at Pentecost, foreigners heard the gospel declared in their own language through Galileans of all people. Look at it, Acts chapter 2 and verse 7. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language? To which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. Now, that key event of redemptive history takes us back to Genesis chapter 11 where we read the whole earth used the same language and the same words. People gathered together, and they said this, let us make for ourselves a name and build a tower whose top will reach into heaven, otherwise we will be scattered abroad, the Tower of Babel, where we read, it was there that God divided the languages of men, and scattered them abroad. At Pentecost, tongues marked the reversal of Babel and the universality of the new covenant, a sign, okay, a sign that the curse of Babel was now reversed where many nations and peoples were to be reconciled to God through the one Christ and his work of redemption. Now, the Corinthian church, my friends, may have been richly endowed with the true gift of tongues, located as they were um, near the isthmus of international trade that, that brought people into that region with numerous languages. And, and it may not have been that widespread of a gift, the, the true gift of tongues. I mean, it's not mentioned in any of the other epistles. Now, unfortunately, many of the new converts um, in Corinth associated tongues with the pagan ecstasy that they were accustomed to, having come out of pagan religions, and the nonsense that went, went on within pagan temples. I'm getting as they did all worked up, leading to an altered um, state of consciousness. Uh, they were very superstitious, very emotional. They worshiped false gods. And this caused them, that this, this hyper babble that they were involved in, um, they, they, it made them feel hyper-spiritual. Now, they had, they had incorporated this into the public worship service of the Corinthian church, so it was characterized by frenzied, charismatic chaos. And it was a bizarre mixture of Christianity with the mysterious, the myst mysterious religious practices of paganism. Now, I know that some of you have come, come out of um, these kinds um, of movements. 
you've told me that um, you were taken into a back room and pressed and manipulated to just, you know, speak in tongues. You know, to be baptized in the Spirit. So all of a sudden, people are pressed far enough, and you start hearing things like, you know, Pulusiba Goomba, I woulda, coulda, shoulda bought a Yamaha. Just utter nonsense. It's kind of like professional wrestling. Everyone knows it's fake, but they get caught up in the hysteria, the excitement of it all. Some of that goes on to this day, as you know. Now, here in Corinth, there was no true edification going on in the church because no one could understand what everyone was babbling about. And it had become a competition of contrived hyper-spirituality. So Paul writes to address the abuse in chapter 14, the exaltation of tongues in the public assembly to the suppression of another gift, that is the gift of prophecy. He says, in effect, Corinthians, you have things backwards That is what Paul is dealing with. The gift of tongues had become a stumbling block to the Corinthians. Now, although we have never here at Pacific Hope Church in 14 years have had to deal with the the ostentatious display of gibberish, praise God. Okay, nevertheless... The principal issue of their problem can still be the principal issue of our problem, so this is applicable to us. Think about this. When God richly endows his people, perhaps he endows you experientially or he he blesses you abundantly materially, it, the endowment, can become a stumbling block. We begin to come to church with with no thought that I am here by God's grace to build others up. So we never engage in intentional fellowship, but we maintain kind of a consumer mentality as we come to church. Therefore, it's very applicable, though we don't deal with this tongues issue in this congregation. So notice now verse 1. Pursue love, writes Paul, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Pursue means to to follow hard after with, with a distinct purpose. So he says, pursue love. What is that? Quite simply, to pursue love is to put into practice 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant. And on through verse 7. Apply that. That's what it is to pursue love. Now, back in chapter 12 and verse 31, Paul said, I show you a more excellent way than desiring the showier gifts. Then he unfolds the glorious love chapter, as it's known, that we've looked at over the course of the past few weeks. All that to say, um, worship services were never intended 
as opportunities for, you know, personal fulfillment, to have my, you know, personal felt needs met. That's not the purpose of the local gathering. Now, in ways that will happen, but as I remind people now and again, especially if they visit here, this, the corporate gathering for worship, is not about you. We gather to, to worship. And worship is paying homage to the Most High, and we serve Him by serving one another. That's our purpose in gathering together. And that is why we've been gifted. This is Paul's point. We've been gifted for that purpose. The Bible, in other words, knows nothing of religious consumerism. In many ways, that is exactly what was going on in Corinth. So he says, pursue love, desire these gifts. So it's not either that we love or we use our spiritual gifts. It's not either or, but both and. Both and. Pursue means to, to chase after those opportunities to love members of your local church family. Pursue that. Present tense, uh, an habitual action. It's a way of life. It's an intense determination to build up others in the faith according to how you've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. So let me pause and throw out a warning because we're not presently able to eat, to, to meet together. A warning for any of you beloved brothers and sisters who are sitting at home in your pajamas with your coffee, and the last couple weeks you've said, man, I'm really digging this church on TV thing. I don't have to be around other people. Take warning. Don't let this become a habit that you enjoy more than being together with one another enabled as we are to exercise the gifts God has given to us to glorify him as we serve one another. Amen? Amen. So he says, pursue love, yet, notice, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Okay, that does not mean to predict the future. That does not mean you're going to stand up in the congregation and say, hey, God told me because then we'll, we'll, we'll remove you and, and we'll straighten you out in another room. Remember that prophecy was an essential gift in the era of the early church. It was a revelatory gift. God revealing his truth through certain prophets. Now, we don't need that gift of prophecy today. We have the completed revelation of God. We have the living scriptures that were completed by the turn of the first century. Now, at that time, the church needed direct revelation in order to deal with the altogether new circumstances of the thoroughly new covenant. Everything up to the point of Pentecost was what? Israel, Israel, Israel. Well, that was finished. Hebrews 8.13, from which we read this morning, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So the gift of prophecy was basically the giving of instruction contained 
in the epistles of the New Testament given to the church before they were received in written form, the gift of prophecy. That is instruction, doctrine, exhortation. It was there, friends, for edification of the early church, to to strengthen and encourage the brethren of the early church. Now, we see something of this in Acts chapter 15. Look at it. After the Jerusalem council, we read, verse 30, so when they, they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And, and mainly it was that Gentile converts did not need to be circumcised. That was the sign of the old covenant of the Jews. So they were encouraged. I would have been encouraged. Notice verse 32. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent their time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. Now, since prophecy like that of the first century no longer exists with the closing of the canon of the New Testament, since then, okay, the emphasis of prophecy is transferred today quite simply to biblical instruction from the revealed text of the Old and New Testaments, prophecy, and therefore gives emphasis to the word of God. That's what prophecy is now. That is, all the divine revelation given to the early church was finally put in written form through the epistles. We hold it in our hands today, the Bible. Therefore, today, all of you, every one of you who is in Christ can proclaim the scriptures in various ways. The entire church, Paul says, should desire this, that is imparting divine truth that both saves the lost and sanctifies the saints, believers. Prophecy, again, is not predicting the future. Desire this, especially that you may prophesy. Notice verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Now, the interpretive key to understanding chapter 14 is the use of the word tongue singular and the word tongues plural. Now, the singular refers to the counterfeit gibberish. We see that in verses 2, 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27, gibberish. And that is why the King James translators, by the way, translate the singular tongue with unknown tongue, gibberish. Yet, notice, when speaking of the legitimate gift of languages, the plural is used, tongues. Verses 5, 6, 18, 22, 23, and 39. With only one exception, that is verse 27, uh, where the singular, singular is used to speak of a single man speaking a single language. Okay? Notice. One who speaks in a tongue, gibberish, 
does not speak to men, but to God. Now, to God can also be translated a God. So if it's God, the one true God Paul's referring to, uh, his point would be um, God does not need instruction. Okay? You're supposed to be speaking to men to edify them, not uttering gibberish. And remember the context. These are a people who had come out of pagan mystery religions serving phony gods, which included useless, um, unintelligible utterances. That's the way pagans spoke to the gods. So notice, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Spirit refers to human spirit here, the rational soul of man. It's not referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay, therefore, okay, therefore, this is not support for some prayer language. Okay, again, this is not support for some uh, private prayer language because speaking to God here is in the negative. Paul speaks in the negative here. This isn't some affirmation. So to make that clear, notice he says, for, this is what I mean. No one understands. He, he just speaks mysteries. So if tongues were a, a, a prayer language, Paul would have said, you speak not to men but to God, for tongues is prayer language. He doesn't do that. It's simply mysterious, and it provides absolutely no edification for God's people. Now, some may be impressed by your mumbo-jumbo, but no one is enlightened. That's the point. Notice the contrast now, verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. This is the non-negotiable. If people are going to be edified, they must be able to understand. Verse 4, no one who speaks in a tongue, or I should say, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Now, again, some try to use this um, as, as a proof text to support their speaking gibberish Referring to, his, referring to that gibberish as their private prayer language. But again, if you no, ignore context, you, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Remember, this is a rebuke for gibberish. Paul speaks in the negative. Because, friends, there is no call for the church to edify itself. There's no call for you to edify yourself now, granted, when you read your Bible in the morning or the evening or do your daily devotions, etc., you're going to be edified. Amen? Yes. But the context of this letter to the Corinthians is the corporate gathering of the church. All you're doing, he says, is edifying yourself. But one who prophesies edifies the church which means that spiritual gifts are not a means of grace to build up myself, but to you and yours to me. Verse 5. Now I wish 
that you all spoke in tongues. Now, now Paul's not, you know, I'm sad. I wish you all spoke in tongues. He, he's making a point here. And remember back in chapter 7 when he was dealing with marriage, um, he said, I wish you were all single. So he, he makes a point. Notice. But, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets, so that the church may receive what? Edifying. Because they understand. So the true gift of tongues given by the Holy Spirit was definitely, most certainly important in its proper time and place. Now, in that sense, I wish you all had it and were able to exercise it, but more than that, to prophesy the word of God. Now, Paul admits that if, if what the tongue speaker says is interpreted, then it can edify the congregation because the language is being what? Translated. And now it's on par with prophecy because people what? They understand. And then this edifies the church. Now, if I came up here speaking Latin, which I cannot, no one would be edified. Because no one understands. There's probably a handful of you out there, perhaps, but not the whole. Verse 6. But now, brethren... If I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Okay, what, what good would it do as your apostle, says the apostle Paul, to come to your church, speak in tongues, some foreign language, and then leave? I leave you with an understanding of nothing. You know, Paul did not speak to the Corinthians in tongues. He taught them. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 11. Acts 18. And he, the apostle Paul, settled there, Corinth, a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So, love, okay, love, I show you a better way, chapter 12, verse 31. Love, chapter 13, love produces edification, chapter 14. Edification requires understanding. Paul moves on now to um, use a few analogies to make his point about intelligibility. Analogy number one. Musical sounds. Notice verse 7. Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? In other words, sound is not music. Hello? Unless there is a distinction of tones, he says. Because without it, there's no discernible melody. You, you know, we could set a group of four-year-olds up here on the platform and give them um, every kind of instrument known to man and, and let them at it. And I will guarantee you that they will work with great emotion. 
They will labor with much enthusiasm, but all they will be doing is making noise. I, I could go sit at the piano, and, and I could hit every key on that board, and all it would be is sound. In contrast to Teresa, who puts together notes communicating something of beauty, something distinct. So speaking in tongues, Paul says, communicates no beauty to the hearers if they do not understand. It's like pounding on a piano without the ability to play. Analogy number two, military sounds. Certain sounds that make sense to the troops. Are we to advance? Retreat, or are we to stand fast? Verse 8, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? If the bugle does not sound a clear call and just makes noise, what do you have on the battlefield? Absolute chaos. What do you have in the church of Corinth? Absolute chaos. Verse 9, so also you. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. The word clear can be translated um, intelligible or understandable. Clear. Otherwise, it's meaningless, it's useless. You're talking into the wind. Analogy number three, meaningless sounds related to many different languages in the world. And th th this would have been very familiar, by the way, in what was the melting pot of Corinth. Verse 10, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without what? Meaning. This is a play on words. Say something like, there are many sounds in the world and none without sound. There's some sense to be made here. So if one does not understand the meaning of the sounds, that is the force of the words, its meaning is lost. Verse 11. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. The word is barbaros, an onomatopoeic word, which means it's a word that is formed by a sound associated with its name, like our word boom, pop, bang. That's a popping, that's a banging sound, same idea. The Greeks and Romans, by the way, considered anyone who did not speak Latin um, or Greek as sounding like someone who just goes on bar, 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 barbarian. So chattering in tongues without translation, which was dominating the worship service in Corinth, even the true gift, 
not just the gibberish, but even the true gift, became, as David Garland points out, a babble ground for competing gibberish. Now, it may be self-gratifying, Corinthians. It may be self-gratifying, charismatic Pentecostal movement in the 21st century. It may cause you to think that you're super spiritual, but it's not edifying at all. Now, Paul keeps hammering home this point. Build up others, build up others, not yourself, not yourself. Use your gifts by way of love, edification of others. Verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Zealous is a burning desire. He says you're zealous. Seek, present tense. Zealously seek to abound, that is for something to exist um, in, in large quantities. Do that, Corinthians. So a burning desire for your love to exist in large quantities for the edification of the church, not yourselves. Consumer-minded Corinthians. That was the intention for the true gift of tongues, to build others up when it was translated not to gratify the flesh, and certainly not unintelligible noise that was only prattle. Nonsense, that, that which goes on to this day. In verse 13, he uses some sarcasm. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Tongue, gibberish. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind, it's unfruitful. My mind is unfruitful. Spirit here, again, is not Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit never bypasses the mind. He never does anything that is unfruitful. You know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit groaning and so on on our behalf in prayer, that, that's a whole other issue. It has nothing to do with this. Now, spirit can be translated human breath. You know, he's saying, look, my human, my, my human spirit may pray, but my mind is unfruitful. Verse 15, what is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Okay, which rules out, friends, again, rules out any kind of mindless prayer language that people refer to today, they try to, try to take this text, they take it out of context to, to become a support proof text for their gibberish. Those are the inventions of men. And again, chapter 14, friends, is a rebuke, not guidelines for prayer language. Verse 16, otherwise... If you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the 
Amen. At your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. <laughs> this, this is very simple, it seems, you would think. Okay, um, uh, ungifted here um, is idiotos, from where we get our word idiot, actually. But what this meant here was um, something that was uninitiated. Someone who was part um, of a group that really wasn't part of the group. They're not part of this group, and therefore they're ignorant of the teachings of that group. It's just simply that they just don't know. So if someone in the congregation has no idea what you're saying, how in the world can they say, amen, so be it? They can't because they don't understand. The spirit never bypasses the mind. Verse 17, for you are giving thanks well enough. In other words, you may be thinking that's what you're doing in your mind, but the other person is not edified. And again, spiritual gifts are for the edification of the body of Christ to build them up. How can people agree with you giving thanks if they cannot understand you? You know, we're reminded, beloved, in Hebrews 10, look at it. Notice, notice this, verse 24. Let us consider how to, notice, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, the writer to the Hebrews says, do not be like those who fail to assemble even more so today. Friends, there are some people who confess to be Christians who do church by live stream, and that is all they ever do. We're subject to this presently. This is a gift to us to be able to do this, that which we're doing right now. But again, this medium is supplemental. This is not a substitute for gathering together. So the timing for this text is perfect for those who are becoming comfortable doing this and say, hey, I think we should do this forever. Think again. <laughs> think again. This is not how the church was designed to function. And again, this is a temporary accommodation to the situation that we're presently in. And I'm hoping that this will spurn within us even greater zeal when we do come back together to do that which this text teaches us, and that is to edify one another. And by the way, you all do that very well. I praise God that you do that so well. But I do know that there are some prior to this present condition that we're in, um, who, whose attendance was lacking greatly, may be enjoying this very much. Hopefully this will be used as a mode of repentance for you, to come in and start serving according to your giftedness for the sake of the edification of your brothers and sisters. Amen? Was that understandable? Amen. Amen. Verse 18, 
I love you all. I thank God, says Paul. I speak in tongues more than you all. That is tongues, plural, the true gift. Tongues, plural, the true gift. And yet, Paul never mentions about his speaking in tongues anywhere else in his writings. It's just to the Corinthians that he was reproving, teaching, admonishing. Why? Because that gift is far less important than the other gifts that are used to edify the body, most specifically to prophesy. Paul knew that tongues would cease on its own, as it has. Now, Paul, who had the gift of tongues, would rather teach with clarity. That's his point. Notice, verse 19. However, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. He values five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible words. Five words of sound instruction are worth more than 10,000 words that create some warm, fuzzy, emotional experience frenzied hyper-spirituality. Okay, so, what lies at the heart of Paul's argument in this chapter is the primacy of the intellect in the life and worship of God's people. Or better, the primacy of understanding. The primacy of understanding the truths of God. Now, that's a a very important principle in our day where experience or or feeling um, often takes first place in the gathering of God's people. So that spiritual life then is judged by those people by what experience a person has rather than by what he or she believes and how they then live out their lives. It's experience. Paul says, no. Must reach the mind. J.I. Packer, in his book, Quest for Godliness, said this, quote, the only way to the heart the preacher is authorized to take is the way that runs through the head. End quote. Or as Richard Baxter once put it, ignorance is almost every error. First, there must be light, then heat. Amen? Inform the mind first, in other words. The warmth is a response to what we know. So our calling is not to seek to abound in the the entertainment of the church, It's not to seek to provide warm fuzzies, but to seek to edify the church, to build them up, to give them the word of God. Do you want to know why the sermon takes more time in our worship than any other part? Is music important? Yes. Prayer important? Yes. What's most important? This. God's truth. God deals with us 
through understanding. And many of you know, you've invited people to this particular church, and when you departed, you said, what'd you think? You have reported to me that some of them have actually said, they profess to be Christians, too much Bible. Too much Bible. God communicates to us through words. He calls unbelievers to faith in that way, and he builds up, encourages, and sanctifies his people that way. The word of God edifies. So all that we do in assembling together must be subjected to this test right here. The leader's primary concern here at Pacific Hope Church is the underlying theology of Paul's entire discussion here, and that is the preeminence of understanding. Primacy of the intellect, understanding the word of God, what it means by what it says. And we'll see next time that it's to be done decently and in order. In order. So Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians Seek to abound for the edification of the church applies to us to this day by grounding everything we do in our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, chapter 12, verse 3, for no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That is to to say it and to believe it. We proclaim the finished work of Christ on behalf of sinners to everyone who will listen. We're grounded in this truth. We've been saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We pursue then the more excellent way, chapter 12, verse 31, because love abides long after the gift of tongues ceased. And to this day, edifying one another in truth. Truth. This strengthens our church. This helps us to withstand the pagan temptations um, that bombard us, pagan thinking that bombards us every day. All of that must be sifted through a biblical worldview. We test all things in light of truth. So the locus of our focus here at Pacific Hope Church is the clear proclamation of the word of God, prophecy, for which we're all enabled in some various way, to declare, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior from Genesis 1, verse 1, all the way to and through Revelation 22, verse 21. And in doing so, the the message of the gospel is intelligible to all. In Christ's church, therefore, will grow strong, will be built up, edified. If you're listening today and you don't know Christ, let me give you the gospel once again. Gospel means good news. There's good news because there's bad news. God is absolutely holy, righteous. He is separate from his created order. And he demands that those made in his image, the only creatures made in the image of God are human beings. And he demands in order for you to gain eternal life, heaven, when you die, You must be perfect and sinless your entire life. That, as you know, is impossible. The wages of sin is death. You have failed. You will continue to fail. God, out of his abundant love, sent his son, that is God who 
condescended to become a man because we're in Adam, the first Adam, we're sinners. God sent Christ who became in human body, human form. The second Adam to redeem everything that was lost in the first Adam, upholding God's law perfectly, laying down his life, was crucified on the cross. While he was hanging on the cross, God poured out his wrath of just punishment upon sin and sinners on his innocent, holy, righteous son. Laying all of the sins of those who have ever or will ever believe upon Christ alone for their righteousness, laid that punishment, laid that sin on Jesus. He died. He rose to the third day. We are therefore justified, declared free from all blame by way of the power of his resurrection, set apart by God, and are saved. When we die in Christ, we go to heaven. So if you're not in Christ today, hear that message repent, change how you think about yourself, change how you think about God, repent and believe in Christ alone as your merit to heaven because you have no meritorious achievements in and of yourself. He's the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. Believe on him and you shall be saved from the punishment that is due. Pacific Hope Church, we ask Ask yourself this, am I living to myself when I come to church, though we can't right now, but we will, or am I, pers- am, am I pursuing love for the sake of my brethren? Do I ver- view church attendance as my own personal experience to meet my felt needs, or do I truly realize that I'm part of this living organism, the body of Christ? of which Christ is head, that I'm here by way of grace to build up my brothers and sisters, and that glorifies the head, Christ our Lord. So may it always be with spirit-empowered zeal that we serve like that for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our time this morning. We pray that these truths planted deep within us would bear fruit, help us to deal with those who might disagree regarding particular gifts, help us, Lord, to deal with them by way of love and edification, help us to hold fast what we know to be true, help us to keep the church pure focused upon your word, and we will give all glory to Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.